Let's turn to 1 Peter. Par for the course, true to our nature. We are now um, still in chapter 1 after a number of weeks. That's okay. Because uh, the Word of God is uh, like a wonderful... Now, I guess whatever your idea of good food is, uh, if you're a vegetarian, I don't live in that world, so I don't know what constitutes a gourmet vegetarian meal. But obviously for most of us, the ultimate is the, the most juicy, tender, wonderful piece of steak you could ever sink your teeth into. I'm a charter member of PETA, people eating tasty animals. You know how these starlets, these celebrities pose I don't nude because they're trying to say, you know, we shouldn't kill the animals, we shouldn't use their skins for coats and so forth. But I, I posed uh, with a big hunk of raw meat hanging out of my mouth. No, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. The point being God's word is wonderful, it's our spiritual food, and it's, there's no harm in taking our time and get, taking it one bite at a time and getting all the benefit we can out of it. And we certainly do that here at Calvary Chapel East. Let's read verses 7 through 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And that's where we left off last week. We continue on with verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. It is a wonderful meal for us each time we come to your table. And Lord, it doesn't matter if we're vegetarian or carnivorous or whatever it might be. Your word provides a wonderful meal for any and all who are willing to come and feed and feast and dine upon your wonderful words. We ask you to bless this time of study now in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, as I mentioned, we got up through verse 8 where it talks about rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory and we talked about the fact that our ability to live that joyful life in christ should not depend on our situations our circumstances the things we see with our physical eyes the whole point is that we focus on the end game and we're going to see that here today with the old testament prophets they were focused on the end game the end game is the salvation of our souls. Verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, 
And it doesn't mean that one day your faith is going to end and you're not going to have faith anymore. It means the, the goal, the end game of our faith is not... And this is where I think so many people get tripped up. And so much of the modern, seeker-friendly, purpose-driven, emergent, every form of what I would call watered-down Christianity misses the boat. It's not about temporary happiness in this life. Happiness is fleeting. I don't know about you guys, but God always makes sure every new thing I get, whether it's a car, a guitar, what you name it, even down to the most minute object, almost immediately gets a scratch or a dent or something. Because He doesn't want us looking to these things for our happiness. The end of our faith is the salvation of our souls. We know Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And there are some men out there today who are getting pretty close. 90% of the world's wealth today is in the hands of just a few dozen people. Do you know that? And that is the end game for them. Globalism, one world government, one world economy, one world religion. And the interesting thing about it is all these different systems that have been touted and promoted and experimented with us and tried and failed, like communism and socialism, and yet the young people of America today are convinced that's the way we ought to go because they've been brainwashed by all these liberal professors and our worthless universities and colleges. I know that's a generalization and I'll probably offend somebody. But let me, you know, I know I'm not entirely correct. I'm just about 90% correct. Okay? About 90%. There are a few people getting beneficial college degrees out there, but most of the time it's all about brainwashing and social engineering. The end goal of our faith is not temporary happiness in this life. Because no matter how happy you manage to make yourself, you're still going to die. And then it's all gone, except in Christ, death is just the beginning of eternity, of wealth and riches, not the kind of wealth and riches that this world offers, spiritual wealth and riches, eternal joy, peace, righteousness in God's kingdom, which is also known as paradise. No matter how prosperous you may become in this life, how successful by the world's standards and how happy you might be, the end game is the salvation of your souls. Without that, you have nothing. And there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness does depend upon circumstances. Joy does not. Paul said the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, meaning it's not material things, it's not temporal things, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. The source of our joy is the knowledge that every day we are one step closer to eternity. And yet sometimes I hear believers say, well, I hope Jesus doesn't come too soon. 
I want an opportunity to do this and that and enjoy this. And I, Really? I don't get that. Nothing can compare with seeing our Lord and Savior face to face and entering into His eternal joy. Romans 13, 11. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now. This applies to every believer of every generation. But I think it applies even more to us than any generation before us. Now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The return of Christ is closer now than it was when you first got saved. And every second that goes by, you can make that same statement. We're closer now to seeing Jesus. We're closer now to seeing Jesus. We're closer now to seeing Jesus. And Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago. 1 Peter 1.10 Of this salvation, the salvation that is the end of our faith, the goal, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. You see, the Old Testament prophets had their eyes and ears on the end game. They knew that the world in which they were living which was, interestingly, was a very tumultuous one, just like the world we live in today. We know that the nation of Israel was in constant turmoil and conflict and within and without. And yet the prophets had their eyes on the prize, the end game, the coming of the Messiah, eternal salvation. And all of their prophetic utterances had to do ultimately with salvation, eternal life, and eternal blessings for true believers, Jew and Gentile, by the way. Isaiah 12, 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. This We know that this is a very messianic passage. He is just in having salvation, lowly in riding on a donkey. Hello, we just celebrated Palm Sunday and Resurrection Day a few weeks ago. A colt, the foal of a donkey, matching perfectly the account in the Gospels of what we often call the triumphal entry. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and carefully searched who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Even as they were living under the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, the Levitical law, they were prophesying about the coming grace of God. And in fact, salvation's always been by grace through faith. Abraham, the first Jew, arguably, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Because of his faith, David, same thing. But they prophesied of the grace that would come to you Gentiles, because Peter here in 1 Peter is writing primarily to Gentile believers. Isaiah 49, 6, indeed he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel just to save the Jews only, although 
They were, God, were and are God's chosen people. And even Paul, who called himself the apostle to the Gentiles, which just displays God's sense of humor, because Paul was the most Jewish of all the apostles, arguably. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was trained by the famous rabbi Gamaliel. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and God called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And yet, even Paul said, I always go to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Because the word of God has come to us through the Jews. We call our faith a Judeo-Christian faith. We worship the same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hello? That's one of many reasons why anti-Semitism is totally unacceptable. You can't love God and hate His people, be they Jew or Gentile. But look at this, Isaiah 49, 6. So, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also... So, in this prophecy in Isaiah, it's not saying that God's not going to save the Jews. Say that's that doesn't take it far enough. Because John 3.16 tells us what? For God so loved the world. That means everybody, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And this is that salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully prophesying of the grace that would come to you. Here it is, right here. You should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Hosea 2.23 Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, You are my people. I love that. What about you? We weren't his people. The Jews were God's chosen people. But then he looks at another group of people who were not his people, and he says, now you're my people. I like being his people. And they shall say, you are my God. How many of you here today will say, you are my God? Amen. Zechariah 2.11, many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. And they shall become my people. And I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Who do you suppose me is? Jesus, that's right. So what do we see here? Salvation for both Jew and Gentile has always been by grace, through faith. Genesis 15, 6. He, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Psalms 51, 16. This is David after he'd sinned with Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan confronts him. Now, David did some bad stuff in his life, but the one thing about David is he was always open and receptive to the Holy Spirit. When he was confronted with his sin, he didn't run from it, he didn't hide it, he didn't pass the buck, he didn't blame shift, he took responsibility. And this psalm is his heartfelt cry to the Lord as he comes to the realization of how badly he has sinned. It's a great psalm. I encourage you to read the whole chapter. Verses 16 and 17. He says to God, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And so David recognized the real crux of the matter was not outward religiosity. It was inward spirituality, brokenness, humility before God. And by the way, David not only was a shepherd and a king, he was and is a prophet. And so he is numbered among these prophets that Peter mentions who prophesied about the grace that we would receive through Jesus Christ. Verse 11. So the prophets were searching what or what manner of time. No surprise, they, having received a message from God about the coming of the Savior, the Messiah, the Deliverer, they were extremely curious as to when this might occur. Just as you and I are extremely curious about when we might get to see Jesus face to face. The Spirit of Christ who was in them, because Jesus is the great I am, not the great I was or the great I will be. He is eternal. He is one with the Father. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of Christ didn't just come into existence when Jesus came into this world. The Spirit of Christ is eternal like God the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Searching what or what manner of time. So they inquired, they searched carefully as to when the Messiah would come and what would be the signs, scriptural fulfillments to look for. Sadly, by the time Jesus came on the scene, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Levites, the priests had fallen so far into religiosity and so far out of relationship with God, they who supposedly knew the scriptures so well either missed them or blatantly ignored them because they were abundant. The signs, the fulfillments of scripture. We know Christ fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies the first time that he came. And it'll be two to three times that many when he comes back. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. There can be no doubt. In times past, as in Old Testament times, God spoke through his prophets. When he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. And again, we find those in the Old Testament. God prophesied in advance through the Old Testament prophets concerning the sufferings of our Lord. Remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and the other disciple on the day of the resurrection. As they're walking along, he's showing them from the scriptures. The only scriptures that they had at that time were the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus did not whip out his New Testament and teach Cleopas and the other disciple. He's teaching them from the Old Testament. They were puzzled. They were baffled. They were bewildered. Befuddled. Totally disheartened by the crucifixion. The followers of Christ. They thought it was all over. Their fearless leader, their Messiah was dead and buried. And Jesus goes back and shows them how the scripture said that this had to happen. Let's look at a couple. Again, King David, the prophet. 
First time I read this verse as a young believer, I was blown away. Psalm 22. Read the whole psalm, but here's verses 14 and 15. David writing prophetically. Again, David went through some tremendous persecution and affliction and so forth. So this verse has a dual meaning, but the most significant and deep meaning is that of the Messiah. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. That's exactly what happens when you're crucified, when you're hung on a cross. And you're slammed down into the earth, hanging from that cross. All your bones are thrown out of joint. My heart is like wax. The medical evaluation of the death of Christ on the cross via the thrusting of the spear into his side proves that he died ultimately of a massive heart attack or a bursting of the heart with the blood and water coming out separated. Medical doctors have looked at that and determined that his heart was just literally exploded. You know what? If you had to bear the sins of the world, your heart would explode too. It has melted within me. Wow! My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. Remember how he, was, he thirsted. You get so dehydrated hanging there. You're losing all your blood. The sun is beating down on you most likely until the eclipse came. Many, many reasons why he would have been totally dehydrated. You have brought me to the dust of death. And then you go down to verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. Yeah, those, those people surrounding him were dogs. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, mocking him, remember? Mocking him. If you're the son of God, come down off the cross. He saved others, but he couldn't save himself. King of the Jews, mockingly. Wow, here, here it gets really graphic. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now we know that David literally, even though he endured a lot of persecution from King Saul and others, he never had his hands and his feet pierced. wonder who he's talking about. It's heartbreaking to think that anyone could read this and not realize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. I count all my bones. And again, as he's stretched out on the cross, tremendous massive loss of blood, horrible beating. All the bones would be protruding. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments. Did that happen? It sure did. The Roman soldiers cast lots. It's like rolling dice. I'm on seven. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. See, this is what Peter's talking about. The Old Testament prophets searching, studying, looking into this, what would be the signs of the coming of the Savior resulting in the salvation of souls. Isaiah, graphic passage. You all know this one, Isaiah 53. I'm going to read pretty much the whole thing. He is despised and rejected by men. Does that describe Jesus? A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And that was the belief amongst the majority of the people that anyone crucified must have done something awfully horrible and must deserve to be up there. Otherwise, God would have spared them and they wouldn't have been sentenced to death on the cross. 
It was the most humiliating, vile form of execution known to man. Only the worst of the worst were crucified. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. That is true. All He was silent before his accusers. The only time he spoke was when someone spoke the truth and he confirmed it. Pilate said, are you a king? And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, I would fight for it. Basically answering Pilate's question, yes, I'm a king, but not in the way that you think. He opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. What did John the Baptist say at the very beginning as Jesus was introduced to the public, John being the forerunner, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He didn't fight. He didn't argue. He was carrying out the will of God. It was God's will that he be crucified on the cross for our sins. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was caught up from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Isaiah, my people, the Jews. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Joseph of Arimathea, one of the few believing members of the Sanhedrin, donated his own personal tomb, which I believe I just saw in Israel, by the way, the garden tomb. Look it up on the internet. It's pretty amazing. With the rich at his death, Joseph was wealthy. He had a family tomb all prepared, carved out of the rock. Jesus was placed there because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Wait, how does that happen? Wait a minute. If he's dead, how could he have seed? He had, how could he have offspring? He, God, the Father, shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This speaks of the resurrection. You can't prolong someone's days when they're dead. You can't have the pleasure of the Lord prospering in his hand. You can't have seed. Who are the seed, the offspring of Jesus? Raise your hand. We are. We are his children. So these prophets, when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And that's the other important point. The Old Testament prophecies do not end with the sufferings and the death of the Messiah. They conclude with his glorification, with his resurrection. Psalm 16:10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, or hell, nor will you allow your Holy One, big Y, big H, big O, your Holy One, the Father's Holy One, who is the Father's Holy One? Jesus Christ. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. How can that happen? Remember when Lazarus died, Jesus went there. Jesus could have gone sooner. He only went after Lazarus was dead. 
because his plan was to raise Lazarus to show everyone that he had power over death. I am the resurrection and the life. And when he went and told him, okay, open up the tomb, here comes my favorite biblical word. You know what it is? No, Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) You don't want to open that tomb. He's been in there three days. He stinketh. And yet you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. How can that be? Because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose. Again, Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. He shall see the fruit of his death and resurrection as many come to a saving faith in him. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. How many of you here today have been justified? It's a work of grace by God, just as if I'd never sinned. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So obviously this speaks again of the resurrection. Hosea 6.2 This is prophetic. It's speaking of the nation of Israel. It's also speaking of the Messiah. After two days he, the Father, will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. What day was Jesus raised? Third day. By the way, this is just a thought. If we go back 2,000 years to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've now entered the third millennium since those events took place. You could make the case that we're now in the third day. Because what did Peter say? One day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. So we could say the first two millennia since the death and resurrection of Christ equals the first two days. If that would be the case, then we're now in the third day. He's coming soon, folks. I really believe it. I really believe it. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then, and by the way, just before reaching this third day or third millennium, That's when the nation of Israel was reborn. This year, 2017 is the 100th year celebration of the Balfour Declaration issued by Great Britain announcing the forming of an independent Jewish state in the land of Palestine. 100 years. It is the 50th anniversary of the 1967 Six-Day War. And there are a lot of other things. I would encourage you, if you go on the Internet at all, go on and Google all the different things that are coming to fruition or culmination this year, 2017. Many, many things of significance. And, of course, there's the the, uh, astrological convergence comparable to Revelation chapter 12 of the woman 
with the 12 stars and the sun and the moon. Do you know about this? September 23rd, look it up. Then, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. For the first time in 2,000 years, Israel is a nation again. They are one of the most prosperous nations on the planet. They are arguably the world leaders in technology. There's a book called Startup Nation that talks about the innovations, the entrepreneurship, the amazing things that this tiny nation has accomplished and done. I mentioned to you recently this water cooler that they've invented and marketed, put out there, that draws moisture out of the air. And then you put, it filters it, you put your cup under, and you can get a cup of fresh, filtered, purified water that is drawn directly out of the air. I saw one at the APAC convention. It's not a fantasy. They've done so many amazing things. And so God, I believe, again, the culmination of this will be that when that faithful remnant of Israel acknowledges Jesus as their Messiah, and by the way, more and more Jews are doing that every day. I went to a Messianic prayer meeting just outside of Tiberias in a community called Poria. I've met on various trips, I've met a number of Messianic. There's a tremendous musician named Sasha who came from uh, the Ukraine. He's Jewish and now he's a Christian, he's a believer. And there are many, many of those. I believe this pouring out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication has already begun. And then when that happens, according to Zechariah, then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Oh my, who might that be? Jesus. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Again, how can you do that with a dead guy? Now they're going to look on me whom they pierced because Jesus is alive and well. And he's coming back again. Verse 12, our final verse today. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. As the prophets inquired and searched carefully, it was revealed to them by God that their prophecies were for future generations. Us. Hebrews 11.13, these all died in faith. Hebrews 11 is called the Faith Hall of Fame. It talks about all the great men and women of faith. And it's, it names the whole list. Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, ever heard of any of those guys? It says, these all died in faith. That's the way you want to go, by the way. You want to die in faith, not out of faith. They all died in faith, not having received the promises. Wait a minute. They died in faith, but they hadn't received the promises. That's real faith. We talked, I believe, last week about genuine faith. A lot of people say, well... God hasn't kept His promises. He just hasn't come through for me, so I'm done. No, real faith doesn't depend upon your situations or your circumstances. They had not received 
the promises. But having seen them afar off, how could they have seen them afar off? Again, through the Spirit of God, through the prophets, and the many on this list, you could arguably say, were prophets. They were all men and women of faith. They saw these things from afar off. Remember what we said at the beginning about the end of your faith, the end game, the goal, the salvation of your souls? Having seen them afar off, were assured of them. Earlier in Hebrews 11, it says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. They embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So they understood something. The promises pertained to eternity. Not to the earthly, not to the temporary, the temporal. And that's why they were able to endure and persevere in their faith. They realized they wouldn't see the fulfillment of the promises of God until they crossed over. They embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And Jesus warned us not to become friends with the world, and yet unfortunately many believers have. We're all at risk. We're all at danger. That's why Paul said, I beat my body daily. Now he wasn't flagellating himself. He meant it metaphorically. But he was talking about that battle of the flesh versus the spirit and how we have to fight it on a daily basis. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering, which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel. So in other words, the writers of the New Testament have reported to us, they have unveiled or revealed to us the message of grace that is contained throughout the scriptures. Old Testament... New Testament, Peter, James, John, Matthew, Luke, Mark, Jude, Paul, all the writers of the New Testament reported to us in their preaching of the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now, one of the big arguments that non-believers use, skeptics use, oh, the Bible's just the words of men. No, it's not. It's by the Holy Spirit from heaven. The scriptures of both the Old and New Testament are directly from the mouth of God. How awesome is that? And yet so often we take God's word for granted, don't we? This is the most amazing, most precious, most supernatural book on the planet. Outside of God himself, his son Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, living within us, the salvation of our souls, this is the most precious thing we possess. David said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture. And if God went to all that trouble, 66 books, 40 different authors, you think he's going to allow it to become corrupted and polluted? I mean, there have been many attempts and people are still making efforts to do that. But we can trust that God has preserved his word. He has given wisdom to those like the Council of Nicaea, who have made the decision on which books were canonical, part of the the canon of Scripture, recognized as inspired. I think God is able to do that 
And he has. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then 2 Timothy, I want to read from the International Standard Version. All Scripture is God-breathed. God breathed into Adam and, and man became a living being. Remember, he breathed into the breath of life. God breathed into the holy prophets, his words. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And finally, we're told by Peter here, angels desire to look into it. Literally means to look intently. Even the holy angels of God are mystified by God's amazing grace, His incredible redemptive plan for the human race carried out by His one and only Son who died on the cross of Calvary for our sins, who rose on the third day to conquer death once and for all. The angels, like us, are created beings, but yet God has no plan of redemption for the fallen angels. We know one-third followed Satan in his rebellion, and they're irredeemable. Hillary? They're deplorable. Hillary? There's no plan of redemption for them. (laughs) Thank you, God. Jesus didn't die on the cross for angels, for anyone or anything but the human race. Let me read this little quote from Martin Luther. It's pretty cool. We'll close with that. Someone asked him this. Do you feel that you've been forgiven? He answered, no, I don't feel it, but I'm as sure as there's a God in heaven. For feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned for want of some sweet token. A lot of sweet tokens out there today. There is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that was first foretold by the Old Testament prophets and then confirmed through Jesus Christ, your son, and through the writers of the New Testament giving us that explanation, the apocalypsis, the unveiling, the revealing. Thank you, God, that it's not your desire to hide things from us, but to make all things known to us. Jesus said everything that he has received from the Father, he's imparted to us. Thank you, God. What an amazing thing that you would entrust us with these wonderful, marvelous, glorious truths. We're not worthy, but we thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy. And Lord, as we close this morning, we pray for anyone here today who might need ministry, might need prayer, might need salvation, perhaps does not know you, has not yet become a partaker of this wonderful grace. We ask that in these closing moments you would draw people by your Spirit, that they would come for prayer and receive ministry. Be blessed. Lord, I know your desire is that everyone would leave here today joyful, saved, filled with the Holy Spirit walking in victory. So Lord, I pray for open hearts and open minds now that no one would resist your Holy Spirit. 
but all would be willing to respond as your spirit would woo and draw us. We thank you and we praise you for this time together today in Jesus' name. Amen.